Welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score, presented by Subway. I'm Joseph Cacharo, joined in studio as always by my fellow co-host, Joe Wolfon. What up? And we're going to talk some NBA basketball, as we do every week on this show. And we're going to start it off, as we have to, with the Kevin Durant-less Warriors. Um, in crisis mode, having lost 6 of 10, going into Houston. Rockets riding a 9-game winning streak. Warriors are going to continue to look pedestrian. Everyone's going to talk about how susceptible they are to an upset come playoff time. And then it ended up being a close game, but there was parts of that game where the Warriors just steamrolled them. End up escaping with, I believe, only a one-point victory. But, uh, Joe, you wrote a great piece about the major main takeaway from this game. So what was it? it just Boogie. I mean, he, to me, played unquestionably his best game as a Warrior. Um, and... I think, you know, when we were talking before the season started about what the boogie signing might mean for Golden State, I feel like this is the matchup that we were kind of talking about. And, you know, obviously he gives them a lot of different dimensions that they didn't have before. But I think for this matchup specifically, where they've really struggled with that Houston switching defense and gotten bogged down a little bit, getting baited into playing iso ball, um, and also just like not really having a low post threat who could punish um, mismatches when they're switching a small onto him. I-, I thought, you know, the way that they played through Boogie in this game, just kind of continued to dump it down to him in the low post, the way that he was able to make them pay basically as a scorer or as a passer. Um, and he's throwing these really nice, like, boun- like backdoor bounce passes. He's kicking out to three-point shooters. He's throwing skip passes, like... His passing was the thing that maybe stood out the most to me. But then in the second half, when I think the Rockets kind of game-planned a little bit to take away his passing, he just took what they gave him and started scoring in bunches. He got 20 points in the second half. Um, And I thought, you know, probably after Klay Thompson was maybe the second-best player on the floor in this game. And I think that's just huge for Golden State. I mean, I think the, the defensive concerns are still there. Uh, you know, they don't go away with this one game. And I thought he held up actually better than I would have expected him to in this game. Because, look, it, it, as much as he can kind of punish the Rockets' switches, um, the Rockets are going to look to do the same thing to him at the other end and get him switched on to Harden and him switched on to Chris Paul and look to exploit him that way. And so for the Warriors, like, if he's going to stay on the floor in this matchup moving forward, I mean, this is the last time they're going to play in the regular season. So if they see each other again, it'll be in a playoff series. Uh, he needs to do better than just break even, I think. Like, he, he needs to um, punish the Rockets' switches in a way that exceeds what the Rockets can do to him at the other end of the floor. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think what's interesting is, you know, wondering if he can do that when Kevin Durant's also on the floor, right? right. Because... Uh, so much of last night was the fact that, as you mentioned, they were running they they were running their offense through Boogie as they should have. Um, they're obviously I doubt they're going to do that when Kevin Durant's back. Maybe they will, and it'll be interesting to see like if that if they do play the Rockets in the playoffs. And obviously, you'd assume Kevin Durant's healthy and they've got their full um, you know wealth of options there. That it might limit Boogie's effectiveness if he's not the like focal point on offense on offense. But what I thought was interesting is like we talked. 
when Boogie first joined the Warriors about how this kind of made them matchup proof because the one weakness the Warriors had is when they went to their death lineup or their best lineups in general, they were always small. And so you could punish them on the glass. You could right. punish them inside. You could maybe get some easy buckets down there on offense and on the defensive end. <clears throat> obviously, you could create some problems as well. And I think last night was the first game that we like really, really saw what we were talking about months ago when we called the matchup proof in that, yeah, this was like a heavy switching team, especially the Rockets. And there were so many points in the game where it seemed like the Rockets had a good defensive possession going. And then it's like, oh, the camera pans a little to the left. And it's like, oh, never mind. Boogie's got Eric Gordon in the post. Right. They give him the ball and it's two points or he swings it to the corner. Like this to me was the game that really showed how matchup proof the Warriors could be. And they, st- they didn't even have Durant yet. Yeah. And I think, you know, probably an underrated element of that is the Rockets who are a uh, very good offensive rebounding team got five offensive boards in this game. I thought Boogie was great on the defensive glass. Um, and that really helped him, I think, uh, basically play to even for the most part at the defensive end. Like, I, I thought he did a pretty good job on a couple switches. Like, he moved his feet well. He kept his hands up. Um, the big thing right now, like, he's obviously not moving great laterally. He's, he's got no lift. Like, there was one possession in that game uh, where it was like a, a two-man fast break, him and Steph. And Steph hit him with the pass, and Boogie barely dunked it. Um, he, he's just, like, not really getting off the floor. And when it comes to trying to contest shots, that becomes a bit of an issue. But I thought he did about as good a, a job as, as you could have expected him to do. And, you know, the, the other aspect of that is if he's out there and you're sort of exposing him to, uh, you know, potentially getting attacked at the defensive end, you almost have to make it worthwhile by playing through him offensively and making the most of his offensive skills. And I think, you know, when Durant is back, the solution to that is probably just to stagger their minutes a little bit more. And, you know, you saw like when when Steph and Draymond were out of the game, that was, I think, when uh, Cousins was doing the bulk of his damage almost. They were really just like feeding him possession after possession uh, and allowing him to basically orchestrate the offense from the lower the high post. So, uh, a great game for him and, and a really encouraging sign for the Warriors if they're looking ahead to a potential rematch um, because, you know, this this win uh, helped them avoid a season sweep at the hand of the Rockets and also, like you said, ended that nine-game win streak. Yeah, so the Rockets go 3-1 and one against the Warriors. They won one of those games without Harden, won one of them without Paul. Obviously, we know about last year it went seven. The, War- the Rockets had them on the ropes, if, probably if not for Chris Paul's injury. From what you've seen this season, uh, including last night and all the boogie stuff, we saw and Clay had a great two-way game too. He was really good defensively on the perimeter. Do you like has anything changed in terms of how you would view this? At, whether it's a West Finals, a West Semifinals, do you see this going any differently? Going any longer? Going any shorter than you did say in October? I, I no, I still think that the Warriors kind of have this. Um, and again. I the, the Rockets have been playing great. Their defense has looked so much better lately. But if I had to guess, I would say that they would have a less competitive series than they had last year because I still think the loss of Ariza is going to hurt them. Um, and I just don't think their supporting cast is as good. And most importantly, I just don't think Chris Paul is as good. He looked great last night, by the way. He had a really good game. But those are the kind of games that he was having routinely last year. And this year, it's more like... He's been really good for the last few weeks, even though like he hasn't shot the ball particularly well. But, I mean, offensively, he just isn't really the same guy. And you saw there were, there were a couple of occasions where he got boogie switched onto him, didn't even look to attack him off the dribble, just went to that step-back jumper. And, um, you know, that to me is a big difference with him. He's still 
as much as he's, I, I think, done a better job of just kind of like controlling games, uh, he still doesn't have that explosiveness all the way back. And I don't know if he's going to get it back. And, you know, without him playing up to the level that he played at last year, I just don't see how the Rockets can make it uh, a more competitive series than last year's was. Yeah, he's not creating that separation in the mid-range. Like, as you just mentioned, even just being able to get away from Boogie, you know, when he gets a big switched on to him. Chris Paul, for basically all of his career, was the master of kind of getting into the mid-range, creating a little bit of separation with his dribble, rising for a mid easy two points. Yeah. And he's just not creating that separation anymore, and it's leading to him, like, getting blocked in the mid-range or just not even be able to get a shot off, and it's, it's kind of jarring when you consider what we've usually seen from him. But, yeah, no, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to be as competitive a series. I just think... Um, I think last year, all the Rockets had to do was be themselves, like be the team they were all year. They were so versatile defensively. Obviously, we knew they could shoot the ball. Like Harden in his MVP year, they just show up and be who they were, and they had a shot to give the Warriors a run at least. Whereas this year, it feels like they need too much. There's too many ists. Like, well, if Chris Paul bounces back to form, if their role players play above their heads, um, you know... If the, if a third guy steps up behind, like there's just too many ifs this season. They're just not as good, um, frankly. The last Warriors Rockets things. What do you think of the Mori extension? You got five years. No brainer. Yeah. Um. I. I yeah. I think the Rockets are going to be in good hands. I mean, I'm really interested to see what uh, the Rockets look like by the end of that second contract because the big challenge for Mori is what do you do when this core sort of starts to cycle out, and that might start to happen sooner than we think because of uh, you know, Chris Paul's, let's call it a gentle decline this season. I mean, that's already clearly begun. James Harden's 29. And so I think you can reasonably say that he has maybe like two years left producing at the level he's producing at now. So when that, when that core starts to kind of age out, um, how are you picking up the pieces? Because, you know, it's not like they have a wealth of young assets that are going to help bridge the gap between this era and the next. I think he's going to have to get pretty creative, and I'm, I'm really interested to see how he handles it. Yeah. Weird day for the Rockets in that uh, the Mori extension happens. Then a reporter uh, claims that their new owner, Tillman Fertitta, is cutting costs across the board in, like, every department. And then Fertitta on Twitter calls out that reporter, basically saying it was BS. So a weird, eventful day in Rocketland yesterday. Uh, let's move on to our uh, favorite segment of the show. Brought to you by Subway, our Sweet vs. Heat segment. Sweet vs. Heat, brought to you by the team at Subway, whose new Sweet vs. Heat chicken sandwiches are making people choose which side they're on. So we'll start with you, Wolfon, and who's your hot team of the week? I gotta go with the San Antonio Spurs. Back from the dead. It was just two weeks ago on this podcast that we were talking about their playoff streak maybe being in jeopardy. Well, they that were, rodeo trip was insanely that catastrophic rodeo trip. They were clinging to eighth in the West. Um... And now they won six straight, including wins over the Thunder, the Nuggets, the Bucks, and they are back up to sixth in the West. Um, I think being back home for a bunch of those games has just been huge for them because they are 26 and seven at AT&T Center this season, compared to 13 and 22 on the road. Wow. And I don't know what that's about, but last season they were 33 and eight at home and 14 and 27 on the road. So they have had some wild home road splits that I can't fully explain. Um, but uh, getting back home has really helped them. And I think more so than that, even, they've just been helped by getting Derek White back um, after he missed three weeks with that heel injury, uh, which really encompassed the majority of that rodeo trip when their defense really fell apart. Um, but 
this season they're 32 and 21 when he plays and only seven and eight when he doesn't they give up about five fewer points per hundred possessions when he's on the floor he's really important and and he's been really impressive to me at the defensive end all season um just like his ability to fight through screens to stay in front uh to contain dribble penetration to contest shots but also kind of keep his hands out of the cookie jar and avoid fouling um as a help guy sort of pinching in or digging from the weak side uh and if you watch like their last couple of games i mean he did a number on the bucks he, he guarded everyone from bledsoe to brogdon to middleton to Giannis in that game there were some possessions in the fourth quarter where it wasn't even like he was getting switched on to Giannis. he was the primary defender on Giannis, who has maybe like an eight inch height advantage over him uh but white still managed to give him trouble and then the following game against dallas just utterly dismantled Luka Doncic and helped force him into I think five or 19 shooting with nine turnovers in that game um so I mean he to me like he has a case for one of the all defensive teams he's been that good uh so getting him back has been huge but um I don't know man it's the Spurs have had a weird season because it's always up and down with them and I think part of it is that they can always sort of rely on their offense because they're a really good jump shooting team. I think they're still first in the NBA in field goal percentage, uh, first in three-point percentage, first in free throw percentage. So, you know, they can always sort of rely on that as long as they're not getting totally shredded defensively. Um, and also, I, I have no idea. They're doing this while starting Pirtle and Aldridge at the same time. While DeRozan, who is a non-spacer, is also on the floor. I don't quite know how they're doing that, but I guess we all just bow at the altar of pop. Yeah, I was going to say, Greg Popovich, baby, zig when others zag, I guess. Although this is a weird way to zig. Um, yeah, no, Spurs have been great the last couple of weeks since, since that aforementioned uh, rodeo trip. It's just, it's weird to see the Spurs the last couple of years, obviously last year with Kawhi missing so much time this year post-Kawhi. Like the one thing through all the the heyday of the Spurs was they could go and win on the road. They were just a good team, right? It didn't matter where it was. And it's kind of weird to see the last couple of years the Spurs turn into this, like, low-level playoff team. But they've got just enough talent to make the playoffs in the West and, you know, to get your 45 wins, whatever it is that you need. But they're not good enough to go on the road and beat good teams. And, like, that's kind of the weird part. But, right. you know, once you accept that, that they this is what they are now, I, I think you should still be impressed by what they've done, especially when you might, like, that DeJounte Murray injury at the beginning of the year, I still don't know if people realize how big that was for them. And right. that's something like even going forward I'm looking forward to seeing is it's a white Murray backcourt isn't maybe like the, the most natural fit if you're starting both of them or they're both on the court at the same time. But I just think, not even just defensively, I think that could be a really good two-way backcourt. And, you know, who are we to assume that Greg Popovich can't um, – extract every bit of offensive value out of those two right. guys or chip england for that matter because <laughs> yeah. you know if the reports are to be believed before uh dejounte murray uh picked up that injury he was you know ready to have a breakout season as a shooter um so yeah i'd be excited to see that too and i'm just you know the fact that their offense continues to thrive is is just impressive to me because that offense is pretty pedestrian you know this isn't like the beautiful basketball that we've grown used to seeing from the spurs in the first half of this decade um, they're 27th in the league in passes per game. They're 26th in frequency of cuts. Um, it's just like, it's a lot of Aldridge post-ups, DeRozan isos, you know, Patty Mills coming off a pin down, Bellinelli shooting off of dribble handoffs. It's all pretty rote. And, you know, they're not reinventing the wheel here, but that sort of simplified offense has really worked because they have all these good jump shooters and they never turn the ball over. 
which is always, I think, a hallmark of, of Greg Popovich teams. But um, here they are. They're tied for sixth in offensive efficiency, and they're 20th on defense, which is concerning. But with White on the floor, they actually perform like the seventh best defense in the league. So Also, you look at this roster, like 20th, okay, 20th ranked defense is bad. But like for this roster, I'd argue that's almost an overachievement. Because <laughs> yeah, when you so. look at the guys they're trotting out, like they could easily be a bottom five, bottom four, bottom three D. Yeah, especially with the way that Aldridge has played defensively yeah. this season. Yeah. He's not been good at that end of the floor. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's still hope that they can win a series if the matchup, if the matchup shakes out in their favor. Like, I think if the season ended today, they would get the Rockets, which would be bad. But if they got the Nuggets, say, in the first round, I wouldn't be... I don't think I'd be shocked if the Spurs pulled an upset there. Um, but yeah, they've been playing great ball, and I don't know. We'll see if, if they can keep it going down the stretch. Another team you can say that about in the bottom of the West playoff race that's playing great ball. Not sure they can keep it going, but the Los Angeles Clippers, the best team in L.A. Uh, <laughs> by far. By far. So they've only, since we last uh, recorded last week, the Clippers have only gone two and one. So it might seem a little weird to have them as one of the, the hot teams of the week. But that one loss, it was to Portland. The Clippers were on a back-to-back, and the Blazers had a two-day rest advantage. So I don't even know how much I'm putting stock in that game. But before that Portland game, the Clippers had won five straight. They dismantled the Celtics on national TV, just crushed them, beat the Thunder, beat the Lakers, which I guess isn't that impressive. They won at Sacramento, which is impressive this year. Um, since trading Tobias Harris, when everyone, including myself, thought they were going to fall out of the playoff race, they're 9-5, and five, okay? Uh, they've beaten the Celtics twice during that span, actually. They're now four and a half games clear a ninth, with less than a quarter of the season to go. So they seem pretty safely in a playoff spot. They're closer to third, three and a half games, than they are to ninth, and they're only a half game out of sixth. This team's deep. We know that. They've got a lot of good players. They don't really have any bad players. But considering how starless they are in a traditional sense, to hang in, not only hang, but to be in the thick of the West playoff race with 15 games left. Like, Doc Rivers has done such a great job with this team. And I know, like, the the last couple of years of the Lob City era, Clippers didn't go the way everyone thought. And I think at least a little bit, especially because of the way he managed the team as an executive. I think Doc Rivers had lost a little bit of his luster. And, you know, I was saying it for a long time. Doc Rivers, the executive, really hurt Doc Rivers, the coach. But you look at him like since going back to just being a full-time coach and nothing else, even last year, I don't know if he got the credit he deserves for how well the Clippers played for a majority last year. And just what they're doing now is pretty incredible. I think he definitely belongs on the short list of yep. candidates for Agreed. Coach of the Year. I mean, you know, he's up there with Bud, with Nate McMillan, um, and maybe Kenny Atkinson. I don't know. It's it's like maybe a five-person list uh, in contention for that award. He's he's really done an incredible job. And obviously, you know, props to everybody on that roster who, instead of rolling over, uh, have really taken it upon themselves to just crank it up several notches. And I think what you really notice when you watch them is they constantly just seem to be outworking and out-hustling anybody they're playing against. Like, the intensity level from the Clippers always just dramatically outstrips that of the team they're playing against. And I think Patrick Beverly probably exemplifies that more than anybody. Like, that dude just has it turned up to 11 all the time and can't really seem to turn it down. Um, so he's been great, and Montrez Harrell has continued to be outstanding off of the bench, and uh, a couple other players who I know we're probably going to talk about shortly uh, have also been really, really good. So... 
I'm really impressed with that, what that team has done. And frankly, I was one of those people who expected them to fall out of the playoff race. And it seemed like maybe they wanted to because they wanted to keep their pick this year rather than conveying it. But, um, I mean, from where they are now, it certainly doesn't look like that's going to happen. You mentioned a couple players we're going to talk about, sure. So let's talk about them now. Let's hand out a co-sweet moves of the week, sweet player of the week honors to a couple of Clippers. And the two guys mostly responsible for this team, this starless team having a top 10 offense right now. So who's your guy? I can think of no more appropriate player to bestow this honor upon than sweet Lou Williams. Um, he's played his way into the sixth man of the year conversation to me. I've basically been set on one of Harrell, Sabonis, or Dinwiddie all season. I think Lou Will stole it now, man. He's definitely in that mix and maybe right at the very top of it now with the run that he is on. And... Um, if you'll allow me a bit of arbitrary endpointing here, since the start of February, he is averaging 24.5 points per game, 5.5 assists per game, and that's in just 28 minutes. So um, on, a, on a per-minute basis, he's fourth in the NBA in scoring during that span behind only Harden, Giannis, and Towns. Um, and if you scale it out to per 36, that's 31.5 points and 7.1 assists and 10.4 free throw attempts. Uh, over the course of 17 games since the start of February. And, you know, meanwhile, this Clippers team just keeps on winning. And during that time frame, they've been 12.5 points per 100 better with him on the floor, which is actually not that far off his season-long on-off net rating split, which is 11.4. So all season long, they've relied really heavily on him. And he's been a big driver of their success. But he um, has just gotten better as the season's gone along. And I think if you you know, compare what he's doing to what he's done in past seasons. Like I think he's improved as a playmaker, especially in the Big pick time, and roll, yeah. but as a scorer, he's not really doing anything differently. He's just kind of perfected every trick in his bag and defenses haven't figured out how to guard him. And I'm not sure what you do. Like he has his kind of shoulder fakes and his hesitations and, and the things that kind of help him get to the basket and bait fouls. But the one thing is just that, like that, sideways drifting jumper going to his left that seems impossible to guard because he doesn't have to stop he doesn't have to square up or set his feet he just keeps moving and if you're a defender tasked with challenging that shot I don't know how you're supposed to time that in such a way that allows you to contest that shot I don't know how you have the body control to basically drift with him so that you're not just flying right past him or basically just not entering his field of vision at all and the fact that he's like I feel like it gets more exaggerated every year how much he leans and also just how accurate he is with that jumper so um, he's been awesome and obviously just like a delight to watch every night. Yeah, and here's the thing I've been saying about Lou Wilford. Like, going back to when he won his second six-man of the year award with right. the Raptors I think in 2015 is, so, like, bench scorers... Um, I think that was his first one. Didn't he win last year? Last year was the second one. Oh, okay, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So... The thing with bench scorers is they get kind of a negative rep in the sense that a lot of them are just kind of like gunners, they're chuckers. A lot of times they're You're Jamal a, Crawford. Right. Jamal, the last time Jamal Crawford won six man a year, don't get me wrong, he had some great years, but the last time he won six man of the it year. It was a joke. It was a joke. He was so inefficient that year. Like he was a net negative on a basketball court. The thing with Lou Williams is like you can't you can't pigeonhole him into that criticism because you can, you know, aesthetically maybe not like the way he plays. Guess what? This guy gets it done. He's been efficient like every year. It's not like he's doing this in a bad way. You look at his last, whatever, five years. True shooting percentage, 56, 58, 59, 57. This year, just under 56. Like, 
not every player has to do it the same way. You know what I mean? Not everyone can be Steph. Not everyone can be LeBron, obviously. Like, as long as a guy's getting his job done, especially offensively, when he takes on the offensive load Lou Williams takes and still gets it done efficiently, who cares how he does it? Right. He can shoot. He's a master at getting to the free throw line. Again, complain all you want. There's not some conspiracy out there. People like referees didn't get together one day and think, you know what? We're going to pick Lou Williams and James Harden and give them more call. It's like, no, these guys have an elite skill at drawing fouls. Appreciate it. So, yeah, I just wanted to go on that rant about Lou Williams because yeah. I think people need to realize he's not a traditional bench chucker who's just going out there and getting his buckets. This guy's doing it really efficiently. Also, in the course of filleting the Boston Celtics earlier this week, uh, he became the NBA's all-time leading bench scorer, surpassing Del Curry. So uh, props to him for that. 32 years old and just seems like he keeps getting better. So uh, incredible. All right, before I get to the actual player, I'll be still the uh, sweet player of the week honors to I want to give half of Lou Will's sweet player honor to my Paisan and his teammate Danilo Gallinari uh, Gallo has battled a lot of health issues over his career I think we know that he's missed I think like 13 games this year but pour one out for this season Danilo Gallinari is having this year man um, last 10 games that he's played the Clippers are 8-2 and two, okay they, he didn't play in the Portland game They're, it was a back-to-back they're trying to preserve that fragile body of his but last 10 games where the Clippers are 8-2, Gallo averaging 22 points on 51-41-89 shooting, okay? Only Landry Shamit has a better on-off net rating than Gallo on the Clippers during that time. And on the season, Gallo's averaging better than 19 points per game on a true shooting percentage just a hair under 63%, okay? There are only two active players in the NBA who have ever scored at least 19 points on a true shooting percentage that high while also mixing in some three-point attempts, okay? Those two players... Not not cherry-picking stats at all. Here not today. at all. Very, very regular cutoffs <laughs> that we use. 19 points, 63% true shooting percentage, five three-point attempts. Those two guys, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. Obviously, Gallo is not Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, but that just puts into perspective how absurdly efficient he's been this year. And right. it's just like every year, every week, every night... You look at a Clippers box score, and it's like, oh, Gallo, 20 points. What? 7 of 11 shooting? Like, how is this guy consistently scoring 20 points on less than, like, 12 shots? Obviously, a lot of it is getting to the free throw line. He's shooting the lights out from three. I just think it's a really great story. Um, Gallo's a fantastic offensive player. And I just think, yeah, in the right system, with the right coach, uh, you know, preferably on a good defensive team that can mask his limitations on that end, he can contribute to a winning team. Absolutely. And I think maybe we should just cap this uh, Clippers puffery by saying that, you know, for a team that has free agent aspirations, big time free agent aspirations going into the offseason, I think they've really positioned themselves pretty well. Uh, and I think they can make a strong pitch to a marquee free agent and say, look, like we have a strong playoff core in place right here. This is a great supporting cast for a superstar to want to go and join because. You're going to go in there and you're going to be the guy, but you're going to have tons of support. Um, And I think, you know, if I was a team like, say, the Toronto Raptors, I might be a little bit worried because, um, you know, they already sort of had uh, the market to sell free agents on. And now, you know, they seemingly also have the situation. Yeah. And also, who doesn't want to be part of that bench celebration when Gallo hits a three where they do the Italian like that? That's just great <laughs> yeah, stuff. That's not, the icing on the cake yeah, right not, there. Not by, the free agent by myself. All right. My real sweet player of the week to, to get away from the Clippers. Uh, it's been a Clippers pot so far is Otto Porter. Shouts to Otto Porter. Um, 
since being dealt at the deadline to the Bulls, and it was kind of a weird deal because the Bulls, no one really knew what direction they were going, but I, I, I said at the time I thought it made sense for them. They're getting a good young player um, that fits with their rebuild. Otto Porter averaging about 18 points on 49-49-90 shooting in 13 games for the Bulls. Bulls are 7-6 and six during that time, which doesn't sound crazy, but when you consider they're 19-50 and 50 on the year, the fact that they're 7-6 and six with Otto Porter in the lineup while he's kind of taken on like primary offensive duties yeah. is pretty remarkable. So I just wanted to kind of give him a shout-out, and the Bulls, honestly, too. Other than getting spanked by the Lakers, they've been pretty respectable the last few weeks, and Porter's two-way play has been a big part of that. And even in that Lakers game, I mean, they were right there until the last five minutes or so. So I, I do think they've been playing pretty well lately, and... The thing with Porter is their wing core was so bad that even just the marginal upgrade has been enormous. And it doesn't even it doesn't even necessarily matter how good he's been and he has been good. It's just having a competent two-way wing, a guy who can defend and a guy who can shoot and obviously as he's showing even handle the ball a little bit. Uh, has just changed their fortune so much and made them so much more of a like a cogent functional team. Um I loved that trade for them, and you know I like that they kind of went for it, despite the fact that they are ostensibly tanking and trying to get a high draft pick this year. Uh, they picked up a guy who has some term. You know they didn't mind eating the money that he has left on his deal, and I think it's going to pay off for them, honestly. Yeah, I agree with you. All right, I think that does it for the uh, sweet versus heat segment. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, the return of Maker Miss will bounce around the association and uh, ask some burning questions. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you haven't already, download the Score app for all of the breaking news, live scores, and feature content you'll ever need. All right, welcome back to Pound the Rock. It's time for another one of our favorite segments, Make or Miss. We throw out a question, statement, whatever you want to call it, and then we debate whether it is a make or a miss. So the first one, Joe, uh, another unfortunate incident in Utah this week. Um, fan told Russell Westbrook to get on his knees like he used to. Russ didn't take kindly to it. Some words were exchanged. The fan has been banned, not just from Jazz games, but from the Jazz arena. Uh, Westbrook was fined 25000 In the wake of that, a lot of players came out. J.R. Smith came out. Some other vets came out. To talk about the fact that this is nothing new for Utah, um, whether it's race-related, uh, whether it's uh, misogynistic, players have often said that the Utah crowd is among the worst, if not the worst. So I guess what I want to ask you is, is does the fan base have a legit problem? It's very obvious there are issues there. The players aren't lying about this. Right. I, is it fair to paint an entire fan base with this brush? No, it's not fair to paint an entire fan base with that brush, but... You know, there is a lot of culpability to go around, I think. And so I will call it a make, but I'll qualify it by saying I definitely don't think that this is exclusive to the Jazz fan base. Um, I do think that there has been some sort of institutional failure there when this many players are coming out and saying, like, this is a, an issue specifically in this arena. And it almost seems like it's taken this long for the kind of punitive action that's been taken. Like, you know, you get to a point where I think a player like Russell Westbrook, when he hears that kind of thing, doesn't feel like he's being supported enough um, and feels like he basically needs to kind of take 
matters into his own hands and clap back at a fan in his own defense. And I just think, you know, like if, if you are the Jazz, if you are a Jazz Arena staff and you know that this has been a problem in the past, like you just need to be hyper vigilant about this kind of thing. And I'm hoping that that will like be the case moving forward. Um, I, I don't really know what the enforcement mechanism is going to be there. And obviously you get into some tricky territory when, you know, Michelle Roberts came out and, and said that they need to have a zero, pol- a zero tolerance policy when it comes to this kind of thing. And that's always just going to be a judgment call. Uh, and it's, it's hard to avoid getting into a sort of, he said, he said thing, uh, when, you know, like it, it's just a question of what people hear or how it's construed. But I mean, we make value judgments about stuff like that all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's how we live our lives is we sort of decide what we will and won't tolerate. And <clears throat> from what I can tell, and based on what current and former players have said, uh, you know, jazz fans and their arena staff have been willing to tolerate a lot of hateful speech. And, um, you know, like if, if that, that fan was saying something loud enough that Russell Westbrook could hear it, then there were a lot of fans within earshot who could hear it too. And I think it's incumbent on all of them uh, to, to, you know, not tolerate that kind of thing and make sure that it gets stamped out before it gets to the point that Russell Westbrook has to tell a fan that he wants to F him up. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Look, I, I agree with you, obviously, that it isn't fair to paint the entire family. It's obviously, we're not saying that everyone who's going to a jazz fan uh, to a jazz game has these feelings of saying these things. But at the same time, when it comes to matters like this, perception really is everything. Yeah. And if you've got players, um, for the most part, coming out and saying, like, that's Utah, that's a jazz game, then yet... It is up to jazz fans, the jazz organization, to change that perception. And one way, the first way primarily is, as you just mentioned, other people are hearing this stuff too. And, you know, you can hear it and not do anything about it. And it doesn't mean that you're, you know, you think the same way as that person, but you're enabling it. If you don't do anything about it, you're enabling it. And this perception is out there. So whether it's reporting it to arena security, arena staff, you know, whatever it is, do something about it and weed these people out, ban them from the arena for life, and hopefully you can erase that perception. But it is going to take a while and it's going to take some work to do it. On that note, though, there is, I did want to shout out, there's a jazz fan, his name's Devin Deaton, and he actually started a GoFundMe to raise $25,000, the same amount Westbrook was uh, was fined, uh, to go towards a, uh, a charity called the Human Rights Campaign. So good on him. And and it's going to be like baby steps like that that will help jazz fans um, change this perception, as we mentioned. All right, moving on. Staying in the Northwest Division. Make or miss, Mike Malone and the Nuggets were right to bounce Isaiah Thomas from the rotation. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it's a make. And honestly, this situation was entirely foreseeable. I think, you know, we were talking about it in the lead up to Isaiah coming back they had really just found something with this bench unit that was led by Monty Morris. And I think, you know, the fact that Isaiah might have upset the chemistry of that bench unit and the fact that, you know, he hasn't played in an awful long time, didn't look that great the last time he played, is obviously a defensive liability. It just seemed like it was going to be really difficult for him to slide in and for that unit to continue functioning the way that it had been. I mean, it just, it sucks for him. Like, I I feel terrible for Isaiah Thomas. Like, you know, two years ago, he was talking about backing up the Brinks truck and this guy finished absolutely justifiably. Where did he finish? He finished, what, third, fourth in MVP voting two years ago? I think fifth. Two Um, years ago, top five in MVP voting. And that season, that is 
no joke, no exaggeration, one of the absolute greatest offensive seasons for a guard ever. Um, there are 36 instances uh, in recorded history of a player having a usage rate of 34% or higher. Of those 36 individual seasons, Isaiah Thomas's 2016-17 season, number one in terms of true shooting, 62.5%. Just an unbelievable year. For a and guy that's literally our height, just a bit, just like half an inch taller than us. Yeah, it's, it was incredible. And, and for him to have fallen this far this fast is just, it's gutting, man. And he's playing on a minimum contract and can't get minutes, um, even coming off the bench. I mean, that's brutal. I, I, can't, I can't remember a situation where a player, basically in his prime in terms of age, uh, has fallen from grace so quickly and I you know I, I just hope that he gets another opportunity somewhere next season and is able to get back to something resembling his former self and, and maybe that just means that he is like you know a, a Lou Williams style gunner coming off the bench but if he can find that kind of a role for himself I would be overwhelmingly happy for him yeah I, I think it's a make I wanted to play devil's advocate and say it's a miss because if you're bringing in Isaiah and you know you know the issue with his injury like it's up to you guys to figure out how it's going to work. Yeah. And you have a couple weeks. You're probably finishing second. Just see if you can get him acclimated and get him going into the playoffs because he could be, you know, a huge factor for you. But I think that's easier said than done, sitting from here as opposed to being in Mike Malone's position where there is a lot of pressure on them, not just to make the playoffs, but given the way they've played to at least win a round. Um, I don't know. It's, it's been a while since the Nuggets have won a playoff series and they've had these game 82 heartbreaks the last couple of years. The other thing too is I think because of that, so, you know, if this was like a more veteran team that's been there in the playoffs, um, I think that they would have a little more rope in terms of allowing Isaiah to play his way into the rotation and seeing where it is in a few weeks when the playoffs come up. But again, just the pressure Malone's under, the pressure the Nuggets are under. They're a young team. They can't take any risks of going into the playoffs out of sorts. So I fully understand where he was coming from in that regard. Keep, uh, keep going here and make or miss. This one... This one I think is interesting. Make or miss, at least one of the Hawks or Suns will make the playoffs next year. Um, I, I'm going to say miss. Um, and a narrow miss on the Hawks front, I think an egregious miss on, on the Phoenix front. I don't think they have much hope of making the playoffs next year. But uh, Atlanta's definitely been playing really well in the second half. And... You know, they have an opportunity. They add another lottery pick to that mix uh, and the possibility of guys like Trey Young and John Collins and Kevin Herter taking another leap forward next season uh, with another young stud in the mix. I mean, I could definitely see how they might get into that conversation, but to make the leap into the playoffs, I I think I would still have to call that a miss, especially just, I mean, you're looking at it and probably you're thinking those top five teams are still going to be in the mix for the playoffs next year. Uh, the Knicks are probably going to jump into that mix. Um, I mean, the Nets are probably still going to be there, you would think. I just think there's there's so much in flux right now, uh, given the free agency that's coming up. Uh, it's just really hard to say. But I, I am bullish on the Hawks' future. I think uh, they have really looked great and, and are kind of coming together as a unit. And obviously, that two-man game between Trey Young and John Collins is looking mighty nice right now. Yeah, to be honest, I don't even know why I put the Suns in this cover. Like, they, they had that win against the Warriors. They beat the Bucs. They've beaten some good teams. They've beaten the Bucs twice this yeah. year. Only yeah. team to beat the Bucs twice. Yeah, I think they, Phoenix is like 5-3 and three since losing 17 in a row. Booker, Booker's having a solid year. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, Aiton obviously is, is kind of lost in the shuffle behind Luka Doncic and even Trey Young and what some other rookies are doing, but he's still a, he's had a, good he's a fabulous young big. Mikel um, Bridges has given them some good minutes. They're going to have another good pick. So, like, I think Phoenix has some potential, but they haven't shown it yet. Whereas, yeah, the Hawks, um, they, they've kind of had the perfect tanking season in the sense that, from a fan's perspective, in the sense that, so they lost like 17 of 20 at one point in November, early December, and they were out of the race early. So they didn't have to worry about, you know, playing their way into a meaningless eight seed or anything like that. But then once they were out of the race, they're like 18 and 22 since mid-December, which in the East, you know, if you, that's like a 36, 37 win pace in the East, they would be in the playoff race going into it. A lot of that is because of their two young players and Trey Young and John Collins playing well. It's not like they're doing it with these veterans that aren't going to be part of the future. They should have another top five pick. They could have as good as two top six picks because from the Trey Young, Luka Doncic draft night trade, the Hawks will get Dallas's pick as long as it's not top five. So the Mavs pick ends up six. The Hawks probably get two top six picks to add to Trey Young and John Collins in the East. I'm going to call it a make. I'm going to say the Hawks do make the playoffs next year. Yeah, yeah, the Mavs have been sinking like a stone too. So uh, that might bode well for Atlanta. And, um, you know, just to to the Phoenix thing and what you were talking about before with the Bulls too, I think you can maybe make the case that these flattened lottery odds have actually had their desired effect this season because those teams who are at the bottom are not trying to completely out-tank each other. I feel like they're still basically trying to win games. I mean, we saw the Cavs absolutely spank the Toronto Raptors earlier this week. Like, these teams are still going out there and and putting a good-faith effort on the floor. So um, I think that's pretty encouraging. And, and I think it's fair to say that the fact that, you know, the bottom three teams are basically going to have the same shot at winning the lottery has has made it so that they don't have to worry about losing every single game and can actually just go out there and compete. Next, uh, next up is make or miss. The Mavs reportedly going after Kemba Walker this summer makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely a make. Um, this was a, a report from uh, Rick Bonnell of the Charlotte Observer said that the Mavs uh, were expected to be the most aggressive team pursuing Kemba in the off season, and I just I love that fit. Um, I think Kemba obviously a wonderful pick and roll guard uh, who would be able to play pick and roll with Luca. He'd be able to play pick and roll with Porzingis or he'd be able to spot up around uh, Luca Porzingis pick and roll. And I think, you know, a situation like this, there's always like, uh, Oh, Luca needs the ball in his hands and Kemba needs the ball in his hands. But I mean, yes, both those guys are great with the ball in their hands, but that doesn't mean that that's the only way to use them or that you know, even putting the ball in their hands as often as those teams are is necessarily the right way to use them. Also, they can both shoot Yeah, the lights out. Right. So they're fine off ball. And you know what makes a good ball-dominant player more of a threat? Having another great ball-dominant player totally. on the court with him. And Kemba's been really good and really effective as an off-guard. You know, whether he's been... Like, when he was playing alongside Jeremy Lin, uh, when he's played alongside Tony Parker, like, he can be really effective in that role. And I think with those three guys, Dow's offense would be really, really good. Yeah. Um, so I'm into it. I hope it happens. Um, and I understand Kemba loves Charlotte and may well want to stay there long term. And if he decides to do that, I'm certainly not going to hold it against him. But on a selfish level, I hope he leaves because yeah. I, I just I cannot watch him toil away in that hopeless situation any longer. The I don't think another franchise just exemplifies 
medi- slightly below mediocrity like the Charlotte Hornets do. Right. Um, they're not bad enough, as we know, to really get in the mix for like a top pick. They're nowhere near good enough to even think about winning a playoff series, even in the East. They're barely good enough to hang in what's a very sad bottom half of the playoff race. And yet, through it all, Kemba Walker has emerged as a legitimate superstar in my eyes in the NBA. What he can do um, as a guard in this version of the NBA is very tailor-made to to winning basketball, especially on the offensive end. So I just, yeah, I hope the guy joins a team where he can play some meaningful basketball in March, April, May, maybe even June, who knows. But he needs to get out of Charlotte. He needs to get away from the Hornets. Free Kemba. Um, Yeah. Speaking of things needing to uh, get away from things, the NBA needs to get away from James Dolan. So let's wrap it up with Maker. So do you watch Game of Thrones, Joe? Of course. All right. Spoiler alert for anyone who doesn't. We're we're not concerned if we're ruining uh, like season five spoilers for you. But anyway, Make or Miss, James Dolan is the Mad King of the NBA. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'll call it a make. And uh, I'll just say one thing before I clear out for you, because I know (laughs) talking to you off the air that you like you were getting pretty hyped up for this one. But um, in the books, there's actually a line, um, you know, the Mad King, his kingdom is about to be usurped, basically. Uh, the city is about to get sacked, and he plans to, before that happens, literally just burn it all down. And there's a line he says, uh, let Robert, who's a usurper, be the king over ashes and charred meat. And I feel like if the reports are to be believed that James Dolan is entertaining offers for this Knicks team, you know, in the range of four or five billion dollars... He seems to be making sure that he burns everything down before that franchise changes hands. So um, I'll call it a make, and now I'll clear out for you. Yeah, so I got bad news in the sense that we may never be invited to a Knicks game ever because uh, James Dolan doesn't take criticism lightly and uh, has banned media before for criticizing him, and I think I'm about to get us banned from Knicks games. Aside from that, uh, yeah, he is definitely the Mad King. It's a make. Um... If obviously this was like a real life crime, if Game of Thrones is real life, it would be in poor taste to compare a basketball team owner to a guy that threatened to burn the people of his town. But guess what? When it's fiction, all is fair. And James Dolan is absolutely taking a blowtorch of wildfire to the Knicks, to New York, to Madison Square Garden, to the Mecca. This guy is a joke of an owner. Other than the fact that he spends a lot of money, which is great. As an actual owner, he is a joke. Last 20 years, 15 losing seasons. They've made the playoffs six times. They've only won two playoff series in 20 years. Zero conference finals appearances. Worst of all, obviously, no joking matter. MSG was successfully sued uh, by a woman who was suing them for sexual harassment in the sense that she uh, alleged that she was fired after complaining about sexual harassment from Isaiah Thomas, who was running the Knicks at the time. She successfully won that lawsuit. And a few years later, James Dolan brought Isaiah back to run their WNBA team. How much of a clown do you have to be? The last five seasons, they're, they're on pace for their fifth straight 50 loss season, okay? He tries to censor negative media, like literally doesn't accept media criticizing what's a very easy to criticize team and then tries to have them banned from like getting credentials or going to press conferences. Uh, then has the audacity, okay, to ban a paying Knicks fan, not for saying something 
crazy insensitive or crazy offensive, but for a, because the guy yelled, sell the team at him, he then claims this fan ambushed him when the video clearly shows all the guy did was yell, sell the team, and James Dolan, with that crap-eating grin of his, goes up to the guy and tells like saw something along the lines of, oh, like, how would you like to watch the Knicks from home the rest of your life? Like, I'm so done with James Dolan. I cannot imagine being a Knicks fan living in New York, how frustrating it must be to watch this man run this team into the ground over and over again. He's a thin-skinned clown. He's a stain on the NBA, okay? And if he does sell the team, take his money, go do whatever he does, the NBA will be better off for it. Where is Jamie Lannister to slay this king? Well, so the NBA has set a precedent of taking away a team from an owner. Uh, They did it with Donald Sterling about five years ago. So that precedent exists. I don't know what James Dolan would have to do in order to get the Knicks taken away from him. But, uh, I mean, I guess you'd have to hope that it happens sooner than later if he's really not willing to sell. But, uh, obviously... It's just disappointing, man, because I do think the NBA is better when the Knicks are relevant and when they're good. And they they have existed in a perpetual state of dysfunction, and there's really no reason for that to be the case. They play in an, an enormous and, and booming market, um, and you know they're one of the most storied franchises in the sport, and just for whatever reason, they have not been able... I mean, not for whatever reason. I think you've pretty clearly laid out what that reason is. They haven't been able to get out of their own way for a really long time, so... Um, I appreciate that rant and, and you laying it all out there like that. And, uh, you know, hopefully a couple of years from now, uh, there will be different ownership and the Knicks will be able to go in a brave new direction. Yeah. And look, I know obviously there are a lot of free agents linked to the Knicks this summer. Most, uh, you know, most namely Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Free agents are free to do it. You know, that's why they're free agents. They can do what they want. And if guys want to go play and live in New York, all the power to them. But if all they want to do is go play and live in New York, may I suggest the Brooklyn Nets? Like, don't, seriously, don't reward James Dolan. I know that it would also be rewarding long-suffering yeah, definitely, definitely reward Mikhail Prokhorov, a Russian <laughs> oligarch. I just, yeah. at least as an organization, they're better run. And they haven't done as damaging uh, of things as the Knicks have. But anyway, I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. That's, yeah, that's the end of that. That seems like a good place to stop. Yeah, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Thanks for listening to Pound the Rock. <laughs> <laughs>